sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and I'm happy to say we have Mrs. Carswell back with us today to read any passages that will be directly quoted from those books. Thank you. I'm certainly glad to be back, and thank you for all your help moving my things. Uh, all I did was call in movers, but I'm glad you're okay with the uh, downstairs room. In some ways, it's even nicer. Well, good. Uh, for those who weren't listening before Halloween, certain things had come to light. A certain suicide in my bathroom, you mean? Well, possibly. And way back in the 1800s. Anyway, Mrs. Carswell was uncomfortable there, so we moved her downstairs. There are still some issues, but I'm not complaining after that Horrible hotel. Which one? You seem to hate them both. I was barely in the first one. Just one night before they demanded I leave. Actually, I left on my own because of how they spoke to me. I guess I was already in a state myself, but there was no reason for threats about police. They even called me a terrorist. Because of the bees? It's not funny. Uh People don't want bees in their hotel. They acted like I just released them in the room. I'm not crazy. Well, uh, most people don't bring bees. In they were inside a glass keeper. Besides, I was lonely and not about to leave them alone. Well, I'm sorry they called you a terrorist. They said I was making terroristic threats. I don't know if that's different, and I, I may have said some things, but I, I was really in a state when I left there. My hands were shaking when I packed up. I, I've never seen them shake like that. And then that ridiculous maid. It's no business of hers what you keep in your room. No. I can't sleep without them, especially how upset I was. I had you put your ear to the glass. You agreed the buzzing was soothing. But Yes, in a way, yes. I only let one bee out, and that was only for ten minutes. I just wanted to check her because her wings were ragged and she was really shiny. That indicates hair loss when they're shiny black. I know shiny sounds like it should be a sign of good health, but it's not. Not with bees. And... You got her back in after inspecting her? I did. I may have let her fly around the room free for five minutes or so, but nobody saw that. And she didn't fly much, mainly crawled. I just wanted to do something special for... <sighs> Excuse me. It was just such an emotional time. When they're shiny black, they don't have long to live. I, I thought... Wanted to do something special for her. Oh, well, I'm sorry you lost your bee. That is sad. Actually, she turned out to be fine. But I had a good cry when she flew around or, or crawled, mainly crawled. 
I needed a good cry after all the stress. Oh, okay. Well... I'm fine now. Ready to get to work. Then let's do it. This is episode 98, Villainous Victorian Women. I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including those uh, short bonus episodes you may have heard back in August. I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. Lizzie bought and gave her mother forty wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty wax. That's a bit from a remix of an intro to a 1956 episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an episode inspired by Lizzie Borden, obviously, and it's remixed by someone calling himself simply Bob's Vids on YouTube. I'll link it in the show notes. I first considered using a version with a creepy, echoey little girl voice you might expect, but... I decided I didn't want to do anything too predictable. Uh, In fact, we're not even going to talk about Lizzie Borden. Instead, we'll be looking at six much more obscure female murderers of the Victorian era. Some of them, at least, are far more gruesome than Borden's case. So uh, let that be a warning to anyone not ready to take that plunge. Our first example, by the way, also inspired a rope-skipping rhyme. While our other five cases may not have inspired schoolyard chants, they were memorialized in song, murder ballads, or to be more specific, execution ballads, originally published in single-sheet broadsheet form at the time of the trials or executions. Unlike the folk ballads revived in the 60s, these more recent creations were ephemeral. They sold for a penny or so on the street and functioned as the tabloid newspapers of the day. Higher profile cases might generate multiple broadsheets just days apart at different phases of the proceedings. Primarily for lower class readers, most were designed and printed in London's notorious Seven Dials slum. Five out of our six ladies are British, by the way, only one American. Homicide broadsheets were the most in demand, with with London printers generating around 500,000 copies per case. Though they might often feature a crude woodcut illustration, there was no indication of melodies other than the occasional sung-to-the-tune-of suggestion. Tunes were often improvised by the seller as he sung a bar or so of the printed lyric to attract buyers. Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and she's rotten. 
lying in bed with her eyes wide open. Sing, oh sing, what should I sing? Marianne Cotton, she's tied up with string. Where, where, up in the air, selling black puddings a penny a pair. Marianne Cotton, she's dead and forgotten, lying in bed with her bones all rotten. Sing, sing, what can I sing? Marianne Cotton, tied up with string. This one was chanted for years on schoolyards in England's north in County Durham, where Marianne Cotton's murderous legacy was most vividly remembered, and where the killer was sometimes invoked by parents as a children's boogeyman. The string refers to the hangman's rope, of course, and I'll get to the black pudding part later. Born on Halloween in 1832, Cotton earned the name The Dark Angel and was described by the Newcastle Chronicle as A monster in human shape. She was also Britain's first female serial killer. Though Cotton was executed in 1873 for the murder of her stepson, he was only the last of 13 offspring whose lives she'd taken. That, along with three of her four husbands, the husbands being more than amply insured for the grieving widow's benefit, Cotton's preferred method of murder was poison, arsenic in this case. The first of her doomed husbands died of an intestinal disorder, or so it was recorded. Their three children succumbed allegedly to gastric fever. Her first husband, George Ward, dies of English cholera and typhoid. Number three, James Robinson, again of gastric fever. After that, she makes a brief side trip to care for her aging mother, who dies within nine days. As you can see, Miss Cotton was dogged by some very bad luck. The rest, to summarize, daughter Isabel of her first marriage is also poisoned, two of her stepchildren, and one the couple has together. Eventually, her husband grows suspicious and kicks her out. Then she goes on to bigamously marry Frederick Cotton, whose current lady friend she first poisons. Naturally, she also slips a little arsenic to her new stepchildren, to her own child by Robinson, and two lovers she takes on the side. And of course, Robinson himself is given a lethal dose. And that leaves her stepson, Charles, whose case proves to be her downfall. Wishing to rid herself of Charles, she inquires of a parish official if he might be committed to a workhouse, complaining bitterly about the financial burden the child presents. Five days later, he's dead. The suspicious official sees to it that investigations are finally initiated. The child's body is exhumed and arsenic detected. Marianne Cotton goes to the gallows March 24, 1873, dying slowly from strangulation rather than a quick broken neck. The too short rope drop causing improper execution may have been intended as a additional punishment. The element of strangulation, by the way, could shed some light on that puzzling reference in the rhyme to selling black puddings, or blood sausages as we Americans call them. 
It's been suggested that it could be a slangy metaphor or visual reference to the swollen, black, protruding tongue seen in cases of strangulation. It may not be true, but it's a nice thought. Lydia Sherman has played with rats Lydia puts no faith in cats So she buys some arsenic Then her husband, he gets sick Then her husband, he does die Another poisoner, but an American this time, Lydia Sherman, who poisoned eight children under her care and three husbands in Connecticut and New York. The source of the ballad is unknown, though it sounds relatively modern, perhaps like something a kid might learn at a summer camp from the type of counselor who wouldn't find work in today's environment. It first appears in print in a book from the 1950s, American Murder Ballads and Their Stories by Olive Burt, who says she found the lyric copied into a notebook of her mother's along with other songs. And the recording from 2006 is by The Mockingbirds, a San Francisco band. And I'll post a link to their song in the show notes. Sherman was described by the press of the day as the modern Lucretia Borgia, the arch murderess of Connecticut. America's Queen Killer and The Poison Fiend. Or at least that's the title of an 1873 book documenting her case, uh, described as The most startling and sensational series of crimes ever committed in this century. Just like Jesus, Lydia was born on Christmas Eve, though in 1824. Her mother died early on, and she was raised by an uncle, showing no signs in her childhood of incipient evil. Her first husband and victim, Edward Strook, she met through her Methodist church in New York City. He worked as a policeman, but after failing at his duties during a hotel robbery, he lost his job and became hopelessly depressed, even suicidal, and on the verge of being institutionalized. Discussions with a former colleague of her husband's, who believed Stroke's case to be hopeless, led Lydia to conceive a sort of mercy killing. An oatmeal gruel laced with arsenic put him out of his misery. Seeing how easy that was, Lydia picked up some more arsenic to eliminate the financial burdens presented by her three younger children. They were dead within six weeks, listed as typhoid fever. Her older child, George, was spared as he did bring in a bit of money working as a house painter. But when he contracted lead poisoning from the paint and could no longer work, Lydia finished him off with arsenic. And her already sickly daughter, Anna Eliza, who worked as a retail clerk, likewise made the mistake of 
getting a bit sick and missing some work, and met the same end. Her second husband, Dennis Hulbert, was an older man who had hired her first as a housekeeper, then proposed. Being older, he was never in great health and soon grew worse. Another mercy killing, and Lydia inherited the house and $10,000. The third husband, Horatio Sherman, was a widower with two children, an older girl, Ada, and a young boy, Frank, for whom Lydia was hired as a caregiver before they married. Horatio's mother also lived with them and assisted with the child care. But she had gotten on her son's nerves as of late, and one day he made the mistake of complaining to his wife that her mother-in-law could be evicted were she not so helpful with the care of the younger child. And that was the end of Frank. And while she was at it, Lydia poisoned the older child, Ada, also. Throughout these tragedies, Horatio's drinking, which was always bad, worsened. He had also proven to be a terrible spendthrift, which Lydia could just not abide. A bit of arsenic in his brandy ended these troubles. But finally, someone grew suspicious. The family doctor who requested an autopsy not only for Horatio, but the two children who were exhumed for examination. Lydia's trial began on April 16, 1872. She attended in Black Widow's weeds, and the affair was breathlessly covered by the press. After eight days, she was found guilty of second-degree murder. Five years into her lifetime sentence, however, Lydia escaped while pretending to be sick to facilitate her plan. And during her time as a fugitive, she actually managed to secure yet another housekeeping position with a wealthy widower. But fortunately for him, she was apprehended and returned to prison. In May of 1878, while incarcerated, she died of cancer, with no one merciful enough to relieve her suffering with a bit of arsenic. read of sad and dreadful deeds of mothers cruel and unkind but in the annals of history such as we seldom find this emma pitt was a schoolmistress her child she killed we see oh mothers did you ever hear of such barbarity there's only one murder in this one, but it's certainly as barbarous as this uh, contemporary broadside suggests. We're back in England now, in the south, in East Dorset, the village of Hamperson. Emma Pitt, who was 24 at the time of the murder, taught class in a building equipped with upstairs lodgings available to school employees. Pitt didn't live on the premises, but one day in the spring of 1869, she made use of the quarters, immediately going upstairs upon her arrival instead of preparing for her class downstairs. That morning, a neighbor, Mrs. Elizabeth Parsons, accustomed to greeting Pitt upon her arrival, sought her out upstairs, suspecting something amiss. Emma confessed she'd been taken ill, but Parsons, like many in the community, suspected, thanks to Emma's figure, that she was actually pregnant, perhaps even ready for labor. 
Pitt angrily dismissed her neighbor's insinuations and sent her away. But Parsons returned toward the end of the day, and Pitt accepted her offer to call a car to take her home. As Parsons helped the alien teacher into the car, she noticed a telling detail, a bloodstain on her dress. Suspecting the school teacher had given birth that very day, Parsons enters the upstairs quarters and finds confirmation of her suspicions, bloodstains on the floor and bedding, but no baby. Frantic at the idea of a newborn left to fend for itself, she searches the room only to make a more horrifying discovery. Pulling open a dresser drawer, she finds the newborn bundled in a quilt, still warm, but very clearly dead, covered in blood and with terrible injuries to its head. Police are called and Pitt is arrested. Their inspection of the upstairs room reveals the bloody murder weapon, a stone used as a doorstop. The ballad makes note of this weapon while revealing a still more terrible detail. With a large flint stone she beat its head when such cruelty she's done. From the tender roof of the infant's mouth she cut away its tongue. Sad and wicked, cruel wretch, hard was her flinty heart. The infant's tongue from the body was wrapped in another part. While Parsons had noted that the child's bloody mouth was agape, unnaturally so, she had not realized that the tongue had been snipped out at the root, presumably to quiet this screaming child. The organ was later found by detectives wrapped in a bit of rag and tied with a ribbon, a blue ribbon. It was a boy child, after all. Pitt was not found guilty of murder, only of concealing the infant's birth, resulting in two years' hard labor. A light sentence, which normally would have been lamented in such a ballad, but not so here, as the writer was so eager to condemn the killer in print, his verse was rushed out before his sentence was passed, a missed opportunity surely regretted. The terrible crime at Richmond at last on Catherine Webster has now been cast. Tried and found guilty, she is sentenced to die. From the strong hand of justice, she cannot fly. Again, this is from a broadsheet from 1879. The verse refers to Catherine Webster, more commonly known as Kate Webster, who was involved in what the press dubbed the Richmond Mystery or the Barnes Mystery. Uh, Richmond being the London borough where the crime occurred and Barnes identifying the bridge over the Thames from which it was determined a mysterious package of body parts was dumped. Webster was only charged and convicted of a single murder, but its commission and aftermath were gruesomely attention-getting, and her notoriety was such at the time that the trial was swarmed beyond capacity with priority given to high-profile attendees like Gustav, Crown Prince of Sweden, who'd come a long way for the show. As mentioned in our Waxworks episode, a good measure of a criminal's notoriety was representation in Madame Tussauds' Chamber of Horrors. 
The Kate Webster, created in the wake of her trial, had a particularly long, healthy residency, around 60 years. Webster's victim was Julia Thomas, for whom she kept house. Thomas's eccentric manner may have helped provoke the murder in some way, as she was known for being erratic and vain and had difficulty keeping servants. Webster was an Irish immigrant whose history in her homeland included a murky number of lovers, husbands, and children, as well as some prison time for larceny, something for which she was again imprisoned in England before her service with Thomas. Physically, she was an imposing woman, described by the Daily Telegraph as a tall, strongly made woman with sallow and much freckled complexion and large and prominent teeth. Another London journalist offered that she was gaunt, repellent, and trampish looking. While the Chronicle of Newgate, Newgate Prison that is, painted the most flamboyant image of all, saying she was not merely savage, savage and shocking, but the grimmest of grim personalities, a character so uniquely sinister and barbaric as to be hardly human. Despite her looks, in January 1879, she was hired as a housekeeper by Thomas, who quickly took to scolding her for inadequately performing her job. Eventually, Thomas dismissed her, but the maid begged for a few more days' stay in the residence while she looked for work elsewhere, to which Thomas warily complied. Tensions came to a head in the evening of Webster's last Sunday at the house. Though she had the afternoon off, which she spent at a pub, her tardy return delayed Thomas's departure for an evening church service, for which she was roundly rebuked. Anger simmered on both sides while Thomas was away, but upon her return, another quarrel erupted, one which escalated, according to Webster's final confession, until the maid threw her from the top of the stairs to the ground floor. She had a heavy fall, and I became agitated at what had occurred, lost all control of myself, and to prevent her screaming and getting me into trouble, I caught her by the throat, and in the struggle, she was choked, and I threw her to the floor. Then it gets truly ghastly as Webster sets out to rid herself of the body. Uh, She mentions a copper here, meaning a copper laundry tub. I chopped the head from the body with the assistance of a razor, which I used to cut through the flesh afterwards. I also used the meat saw and the carving knife to cut the body up with. I prepared the copper with water to boil the body to prevent identity, and as soon as I had succeeded in cutting it up, I placed it in the copper and boiled it. I opened the stomach with the carving knife and burned up as much of the parts as I could. The burning of the internal organs caused a smell noted by neighbors, and one which affected even Webster, who later related that she was greatly overcome both from the horrible sight before me and the smell. But the very piece de resistance related in several newspapers after Webster's execution 
implies that the fat that greased the surface of the water after boiling the carcass was collected by Webster and offered for sale as beef drippings. That is, a flavorful fat in which to fry foods or even to be enjoyed as a spread. And one account has her offering the best beef drippings to some local youths and another to the proprietress of a pub. The body parts Webster wrapped in brown paper and packed into a valise, though there was no room for the head and only one foot. The missing foot, it was soon discovered, had been thrown onto a dung heap in Twickenham, but discovery of the head came only at a much later date. Webster apparently disposed of the valise during a visit to former neighbors living in the vicinity of the Barnes Bridge, from which, as I said, she seems to have dropped her heavy load. Webster, it seems, was in no hurry to flee the scene of the crime. She continued residing in the Thomas home for some time after the murder, during which she was seen by neighbors flitting about in the dead woman's upscale clothing and jewelry. To further profit from her misdeeds, she arranged to sell off Thomas's furnishings to a local pub owner by the name of John Church. Webster not only borrowed her deceased mistress's wardrobe, but also her identity, passing herself off as Mrs. Thomas while delivery men came to collect the furnishings bound for Church. Unfortunately for her, a neighbor saw Webster dressed as the homeowner and heard workers addressing her by the dead woman's name. She contacted the police. By the time officers were dispatched to the Thomas home, Webster had flown to Ireland, but investigators found damning evidence occasioning her arrest and extradition, namely bloodstains, burned finger bones and the ashes of the hearth, and fatty deposits dribbled down behind the copper basin. By the time of the trial, the valise and its grisly contents had also been retrieved. As details of the case came to light, public interest exploded. When Webster was transported back to London, crowds massed at every train station along the route, hoping to catch a glimpse of her or even her train. After Webster's execution, John Church, who'd managed to acquire rights not only to Webster's property, but also artifacts from the Thomas House, sold off all that he could to souvenir hunters. Webster's pocket watch, as well as the knife and the basin used in destruction of the corpse. Those who couldn't obtain such high-profile items swarmed the grounds of the murder house, raiding it for souvenirs, including twigs snapped from the trees or pebbles pocketed from garden walkways. Oddly, it was only in 2006 that the head, or skull by then, of Mrs. Thomas was located, recovered from a garden belonging, of all things, to the nature documentarian Sir David Attenborough, turning up during excavations for an extension of his home into the back garden, property that had once belonged to the Hole in the Wall pub, a favorite haunt of Webster's, and given that it concealed the skull for a full 179 years, a rather good place, as it turns out, to bury a severed head. 
Of all the tales was ever told, I now will one impart, that cannot fail to terror strike in every human heart. The deeds of Mary Arnold, who does in a jail deplore. Oh, such a dreadful tale as this was never told before. Thus begins the 1843 ballad, Mary Arnold, the Female Monster, one which I think delivers rather solidly on its monstrous promise. This one, I'm afraid, involves a mother mutilating her own child. While it's not made explicit in the ballad or other accounts, at the time, the reader would have understood that the unfortunate child was thus mistreated in order to transform him into a particularly pitiful street beggar, one more likely to collect charity from sympathetic passers-by. This, of course, to line the pockets of the cruel mother, Mary Arnold. This uh, beastly practice is not without precedent, and sadly occurs even today. In 2010, a Romanian begging ring was investigated by the European Parliament for just such practices. And in India, the atrocity occurs in Gujarat City around a shrine to the Saint Shah Dola, a holy man sought out by couples hoping for children, one who happens to be associated with mice or rats. Because of this association, it's believed that individuals suffering from microcephaly or small, narrow heads with sloping foreheads bear a resemblance to that animal and are therefore especially blessed by the saint and able to transmit this blessing to those showing them charity. Congregating around the shrine, these microcephalic rat children, as they're called, therefore do a particularly brisk business as beggars. Reports of parents intentionally deforming a newborn's head with metal bands date back to at least the 1920s. A recent documentary, The Rat Children of Shah Dola, documents the ongoing practice. A similar custom involving blinding children to create superior beggars is also a plot element of the 2008 Bollywood film Slumdog Millionaire. And as it turns out, the slumdog scenario is of the type described in our ballad, though the blinding process here is imagined in an even more ghastly way. The dreadful crime she did commit does all the world surprise. Black beetles placed in walnut shells bound round her infant's eyes. The walnut shells and beetles whip a bandage she bound tight around her infant's tender eyes to take away its sight. The child's eyes, of course, being the carnivorous beetle's only available food, so don't blame the beetle. Now, I'm relieved to tell you that this particular broadsheet and Mary Arnold's crimes are, with all probability, merely the product of a particularly dark imagination. As there are no court records involving the prosecution for such a case in England, it's likely only a Victorian urban legend though it does appear in a number of iterations. One of these is another undated broadsheet which relates the story in prose and provides further details such as Mary Arnold's place of birth, husbands, and work as a prostitute, as well as placing the court case in Eton and naming a judge whose identity doesn't actually match any names in the archives. The newspaper Reading Mercury repeats the narrative in a June 17th edition in 1843, a monster, 
a day or two since, a gentleman traveling along the road near Collinbrook had his attention attracted to the screams of a child in the care of a trapping woman who had with her two other children totally blind. The cries of the child were so distressing that he insisted on knowing the cause, but not getting a satisfactory answer, he forcibly removed a bandage from its eyes when, horrid to relate, he found these encased with two small perforated shells in which were two live black beetles for the purpose of destroying the sight. The woman was instantly seized and given into custody. The article ends with a reference to an upcoming trial, but nothing more is heard of the case in the pages of the Mercury. And three years later, a version of the story appears in The Mysteries of London, a weekly Penny Dreadful, widely understood as an early work of serially published Gothic fiction, but purporting to document nefarious activities of various underworld figures. Most prominently, a serial killer and body snatcher known as the Resurrection Man. The story in question relates what's supposed to be a dialogue between two lowlifes of a West Smithfield slum discussing the actions of an unnamed Mary Arnold-like figure. She covered the eyes over with cockle shells, the eyelids, you see, being wide open, and in each shell there was a large black beetle, a bandage tied tight around the head, kept the shells in their place, and the shells kept the eyelids open. In a few days, the eyes got quite blind, and the pupils had a dull, white appearance. The old baby farmer has been executed. Now it's quite time she was put out of the way. She is a bad woman, it is not disputed. Not a word in her favor. After our last one, I should probably reassure listeners that baby farming has nothing to do with the agricultural processing of human infants. It's not that bad, but it's bad. That uh, song, by the way, was Eliza Carthy's 2017 rendition of the broadside ballad, Mrs. Dyer, the Baby Farmer. Our final case is that of Mrs. Amelia Dyer of Bristol, England, a high-profile baby farmer, but not England's only example. There was also Margaret Waters, executed in Brixton in 1870, whose uh, crimes were notorious enough to have generated her own ballad, in which baby farming is nicely explained. What is baby farming, some mothers may say? Tis a practice that takes a poor infant away from the care of its mother by a stranger instead. The poor little creature is fostered and bred. Sometimes a young woman has been led astray, sends the child of her guilt to be out of the way. She pays a few pounds, tis a bargain, and then she gives it up never to see it again. While that's a good start, it should also be noted that not all mothers arranged a lump-sum, once-and-for-all adoption of their illegitimate infants. 
In more respectable situations, the farmer might be paid monthly and the baby reclaimed when circumstance allowed. But the designation baby farmer was derogatory and applied to more unscrupulous caregivers. A reason for this was that the lump sum paid for permanent care was a relatively low fee paid by lower class women and not one realistically expected to sustain the child for long. For this reason, infants thus abandoned tended to be poorly fed or outright starved, quieted with sips of gin, or even killed, the last being the accusation made against Amelia Dyer. It's unknown how many infants expired under Dyer during the 17 years she applied this trade. Early on, in 1879, she was sentenced to six months hard labor for a case of neglect noted by a local doctor called in to sign the death certificate. The incident, rather than leading Dyer to reform her ways, instead resulted in her ceasing to report deaths, instead disposing of dead babies in secret. In 1891, a mother whom Dyer had been trying to evade showed up with police to reclaim her baby, but Dyer insisted the child had been passed on to a couple with no verifiable address. This second brush with the law sent Dyer into a downward spiral during which she attempted to slit her own throat and was committed for a time to an insane asylum. Later, her daughter, Mary Palmer, who would testify against her in court, said of her mother, The only thing she seemed to want to do was to commit suicide. She threatened my life on several occasions, and once she attempted it. Mary's testimony against Dyer was probably offered in an effort to protect her and her husband against prosecution, since they themselves, encouraged by Dyer, created their own baby farming operation, one intertwined with her mother's. In 1895, both were investigated again when one of Mary's charges was passed on to Dyer's care and somehow disappeared. However, it was some time before any of the accusations against Dyer were fully pursued, in part because she tended to work under a variety of aliases and move her operation from city to city when things got a bit hot. Relocating from Bristol to Reading after the 1895 incident, she took in the illegitimate child of a Cheltenham barmaid by the name of Evelina Marmon, assuring her in a letter that her child Doris would be well looked after, adding, I don't want the child for money's sake but for company and home comfort. A child with me would have a good home and a mother's love and care. Hmm. After receiving her payment and box of baby clothes from Mormon, Dyer traveled with the infant Doris to her daughter's home in London. In her testimony, Mary recalled greeting her mother as she arrived with the child in her arms and then leaving her briefly while she tended to some task in the backyard. I may have been there ten minutes. I went into the sitting room. My mother was there, sitting at the table and putting a carpet bag under the couch. Up to the time of going to bed, I heard no sound and saw no sign of the child who had been in my mother's arms. When Mary asked about the infant, Dyer claimed she'd only been an interim caretaker and that a Mrs. Harris had just arrived to claim the child during the ten minutes the daughter was outside. The next day, Mary accompanied Dyer to the station to pick up the child of a Reading woman, a boy by the name of Harry, 
delivered to Paddington Station by an associate. That evening, when Mary excused herself to put her own child to bed, Dyer said she would do the same with Harry. Mary testified, I might have been out of the room for 10 or 15 minutes. When I got back to the sitting room, the baby was lying on the couch, covered all over with her shawl. I asked if it had gone to sleep, and she said yes. I went to look at it, but she pushed me away. The next morning, Harry is nowhere to be seen. But Mary notices... A parcel under the head of the couch. I could only see one end of the parcel. It looked like the shape of a child's head. It was tied up in what looked like a napkin. The rest of the parcel was like a child's body, so that the whole thing looked like a child. When she asks about Harry, Dyer tells her to mind her own business. When Mary takes Dyer to the station for her return trip to Reading, there's no baby with her, only that carpet bag. She also notices that a couple bricks have been removed from the backyard. Back in Reading, the old baby farmer is later spotted carrying her carpet bag out on the bridge over the Thames. And with uh, that taken care of, Dyer is pleased to already have an appointment with a new client with whom she'd been corresponding. The next day, however, when she opens the door to receive that customer, she realizes they were undercover police, and they are asking some very pointed questions. She's later arrested, along with Arthur Palmer, husband of Mary. When her home is inspected, investigators notice smell of decaying flesh, but locate no bodies. But when the Thames is dredged, the bag containing the bodies of Harry and Doris and two bricks is found, along with the bodies of four other infants. Suspecting Dyer in roughly 20 cases under investigation, police aren't sure which bodies might be her victims. Dyer was said to offer the following clarification. You'll know all mine by the tapes round their necks. That is, a white-seeming tape or ribbon, her preferred tool of strangulation. When the bag and its contents are subjected to forensic analysis, the brown paper wrapping the bodies reveals subtle handwritten traces of Dyer's own home address. While imprisoned before her trial, Dyer made two unsuccessful attempts at suicide, after which she wrote a full confession exonerating the Palmers. The jury took all of five minutes to reach their verdict, guilty, naturally, and all that remained was an appointment with the hangman, a moment nicely described in our closing audio snippet, Derek Lamb's 1969 recording of the broadsheet ballad, Mrs. Dyer, the Baby Farmer. Down through the trapdoor, she's quickly disappearing. Her poor little victims in front of her eyes. The sound of her own death bell she be a-hearing. The rope round her neck, how quickly time flies.
I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. Uh, this time around, rather than listing off all the rewards patrons can receive, as I usually do, I'm do. I'm going to start uh, a tradition of uh, reading off some comments from happy customers. Uh, from a patron Anne Lubin, whose uh, folklore-friendly art can be seen on Sooth Stitcher, she says, As a subscriber, the monthly episode soundscapes bring a catacomb chill to the cubicle, and the written show scripts provide a wealth of esoteric resources for expanded reading. Frequent posts create an archive of photographic inspiration, uh, articles of historic oddity, and frightful film recommendations galore. I wish I could reveal the thoughtful curios included in the mystery kit, but I will forgo those details to preserve, well, the mystery. So, there you have it. No need to take my word for it anymore. And we do have a healthy crop of patrons to thank, including some from a month or so ago. Our heartfelt gratitude goes out to Ghost Town, Simon Hagberg, Kelsey H., Dawn Pearson, Urspo, Erica Cooper, Ruben Arieno, Miranda Yancey, Always in the Woods, Stickler, and uh, D, uh, user just going by D, and also one going by G, and also thanks to Lauren B. Cohen and Cadaver Mouse for upping their pledges. I'd also like to thank new patron Jennifer White, who has a very interesting blog on Scottish folklore called The Adder's Den, which you can uh, find on Facebook under that name, as well as on uh, theaddersden.wordpress.com and thanks to Chad Bertieshaw who took my warnings to heart about patrons being the show's lifeline. Normally uh, he listens via Stitcher which has uh, recently had trouble with our feed and uh, not finding it there for months Chad thought our show had indeed given up the ghost which it could do without support but he did find us then later on Spotify, all hale and healthy, and the momentary scare turned him into a supporter. So keep that cautionary tale in mind. Thanks also for the kind reviews left by Identical Oscar, or uh, Jessica, Grim Robes, Rihanna One, Urpso, one of our new patrons, and Alex McKinley. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>